two brothers today. Uh, we will read Genesis 38 in just a moment, in a little bit here, but uh, because these are two separate stories, we wanted to be able to work through them where they could be familiar before we, we will read the 38 right before we talk about it so that we keep in mind what ones we're looking at here. Uh, at first glance, when you look at chapter 38 and 39 of Genesis, it seems unrelated. Uh, the events that happen in 38 happen over a period of about 20 years, we sort of assume, and they happen in Canaan. The event that happens in Genesis 39 happens around a 10-year time span, uh, all the things happening in there, and so they're very, in Egypt, so very different places, very different times, the characters in the stories in no way interact with each other, so we say, how are these connected? Moses intentionally connects these and we're going to see why that is toward the end, but we want to just focus on each of these historical narratives one at a time before we bring it together. Uh, Genesis 39 is probably one of the more familiar stories of the life of Joseph. Remember, the story of Joseph is itself a, an individual account. It's a one-story concept, and so we're trying the best we can to read it, to understand it, to apply it, and not quickly jump to Genesis 50 every time not jump to the end. Think of it like you're reading a novel, and though sometimes you're really tempted to go see what happens, you got to stay on the page you're at, even though we know what happens. So we're doing the best to try to do that. What is the setting? What is going on here? Well, the text begins where we left off last week. Joseph is sold by his brothers to, and by the Ishmaelites, uh, to the Egyptians, and here we find out specifically who now owns Joseph. His name is Potiphar, and he's the captain of Pharaoh's guard. Probably then, he's second in command to the Pharaoh himself, a very important individual. The captain of the guard was not just the individual in charge of Pharaoh's armies, but he was the individual in charge of Pharaoh himself, security. So this would be in the palace, in the area there. Joseph is interacting with Egyptian royalty in his enslavement here. And Potiphar likely had many slaves. Uh, one of the things that is true about the Egyptians is that the peoples they conquered, they made slaves out of them, and the wealthier you were, the more important you were, the more slaves you had. And so Joseph is just one of those slaves. Now, there's a key phrase in understanding this story that, that I think we have to understand, and it's this one. The Lord was with Joseph. That's repeated throughout this text. In fact, the whole account, being a chiasm, is flanked by this idea. The Lord was with Joseph when we find him in Potiphar's house, and when we find him in a prison at the end of the story, the text says the Lord was with Joseph. Yahweh was with him. And it repeats it. He was with him. He was with him. So it repeats it over and over and over again. Though the covenant family, Joseph's brothers, had abandoned, violated Joseph, Yahweh had not. He was still with him. As a result of being with him, we read that Joseph had this favor that affected Potiphar to the point that Potiphar puts the slave in charge of his entire household. 
Does that mean then, quick sidebar, does that mean that God, we only know God is with us if he gives us the raise at work, if he puts us in charge of everything? No. Um, we could easily just as say, then you only know God is with you if you get sold into slavery as well. So we would obviously not look at this and conclude that whatever happened to Joseph, that's what must happen to us, otherwise God's not with us. The reason why this is being described this way is it's a common Hebraism. It's all through the Old Testament, the Lord being with someone, to explain why it was that Joseph experienced some prosperity. Not that every time the Lord is with someone, they experience prosperity, but the idea here is like this is why Joseph, the slave, could have this amazing rags-to-riches story. It's because of the Lord. And in case we miss that, it gets in verse 23, it says it two more times at the very end. And all through this, the Lord is present. The Lord is doing this. Just so we don't think for a moment that Joseph's ingenuity brought this to pass, Moses wants us to keep remembering God was showing extreme favor and kindness to Joseph here. He shouldn't have been under Potiphar this way. He shouldn't have had all the favor he, he, he expressed. Something supernatural is going on. Something divine and providential is behind the scenes. That's the key phrase in the message, in the text. So the story simply goes, as we just read, because God's sovereign hand is with Joseph, though a slave, he quickly gains the trust of Potiphar. How much trust did he have? Well, I love the expression of Moses. It said, so much trust did, Joseph, did Potiphar have of Joseph that Potiphar basically took a vacation from all of his duties. He said he was not even there anymore. He didn't know anything happening in his house. And it says, and I love this phrase, except when his bread came to him. Except like, call me when it's dinner time. That's all I need to know. He trusts Joseph implicitly with everything. A slave, a Hebrew slave. Clearly, God is doing something providentially unique here. Furthermore, God's unique hand of blessing on Joseph trickles down onto Potiphar. It says in our text in verse 5 that for Joseph's sake, Potiphar gets richer and more successful than he's ever been before. So it's like this uh, proximity effect. Potiphar's near Joseph. Potiphar gets blessed along with Joseph. The Lord's with Potiphar because he's with Joseph. But the story turns rather quickly. Undercurrents of disaster hide beneath calm waters. Often our greatest blessings become the means of our greatest troubles. Because Pharaoh had entrusted everything to Joseph, removing himself from all his affairs, and because Joseph was, quote, handsome in form and appearance, problems are going to arise. It's fascinating that phrase, handsome or beautiful in form and appearance, is the exact Hebrew phrase that's used of Rachel, Joseph's mom. In other words, he got good genes. And that is a very unique description in Hebrew. It basically is the equivalent. What we said of Rachel, she was like a supermodel. We say of Joseph, he is a hunk. And he's probably at this time, we would assume 10 years passes, 
the latter, the, most of it's probably about halfway through this in this account. So he's in his mid-20s. He's in his prime. He's hot. He's like the guy. He's successful. He's everything that everyone wants. What a blessing, right? Really? It turns out to be something that from a human perspective becomes the very thing that hurts him personally. This isn't the point of the sermon. Remember this when we're tempted to covet other people. The text turns very quickly and says, but Potiphar's wife cast longing eyes. She basically says, I want what everybody else wants, but guess what? Since he's a slave, I can get whatever I want. And Joseph is successful, but he's quickly reminded that he is still a slave. He doesn't have rights or recourse. And so Potiphar's wife, which I wish we had a name, so I would have to say Potiphar's wife every time I talk about her, or Mrs. Potiphar, or something like that. But Potiphar's wife, she casts longing eyes toward Joseph, and so she comes to him and very directly says, lie with me, have sex with me. Any slave would be privileged to have the approval of Mrs. Potiphar. And I got to tell you, Joseph's story here, from a purely practical perspective, is a bit of a, a breath of fresh air in Genesis, right? Because <laughs> the most shocking part of this story, from what we've read through Genesis so far, is that Joseph doesn't. Because we have not read that sort of resolve yet in the book of Genesis. He refuses. Why did Joseph refuse to sleep with Potiphar's wife? Why did he refuse to commit adultery? I love how the text tells us why. But first of all, why did he not? Well, it's not because he was afraid of getting caught. In fact, he says, I know we won't get caught. I know that whatever happens in this house, Potiphar doesn't know. So his reason is not like, no, we can't. What if Potiphar finds out? It's not at all what he even says. It's not because he was afraid of getting caught. It's not because he was afraid of the consequences. Not because he was timid or shy. He had great uh, preeminence there. It was simply for two reasons as described in the text of Scripture. In verse 8 and 9, he, he refuses because, like the book of Proverbs describes of a wise man, he possessed godly integrity. He says, I can't do this because I won't get caught. Because Potiphar has placed everything under my hands and he doesn't know what's happening. That's why I can't. What a completely opposite way of the way we usually resist temptation. We usually resist it. And it's not that it's wrong to resist temptation this way. Don't, don't misunderstand me. Sometimes it's very helpful to like say, well, this could happen and this could happen and this could happen. But we just should note here, that's not what Joseph's thinking about. He says, because of integrity, I can't. I can't do this to Potiphar. And then he even says, and you are his wife. I can't do this to you. He has integrity. He will honor Potiphar. He will honor Mrs. Potiphar. But the ultimate reason is found in the end of verse 9 when he says, and how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? A 
fear of God above all. He expresses godly integrity and then he fears God. Joseph ultimately desires to honor God. And by the way, side note, Joseph functions as a moral witness amongst the depravity we've read about in Genesis. You know that old sort of joke people have about like, uh, like 50 years ago, doctors treating patients and smoking cigarettes while they're treating patients. They're like, but we didn't know. We didn't know it was so bad. We didn't know we were giving everybody cancer. You know, like, and sometimes we can say that, well, they didn't know any better at this time or they didn't know any better or they're just doing the best they can. But when you have the presence of somebody who knows better, it kind of stands as a moral witness against everybody else saying, well, we really didn't know what we were doing. That's going to come in handy, by the way, when we look at the next previous chapter. Stands as a moral witness here that ab- absolutely an individual could say no because he fears God. But she stalks him day by day, it says in the text. He consistently refuses holding to integrity in the fear of God. Remember I said the Joseph story has a lot of ironies. Oh, the irony of the coat. Joseph keeps getting caught by the coat, right? It was the coat of many colors that got him hated by his brothers and thrown in the pit. And this time, he's in there doing Potiphar's business alone. And she's like, I'm tired of this slave thinking he can resist me. And so it says she grabs him by the coat. And she says, lie with me. This time Joseph knows reason will not work. And so it says he flees, he runs out, leaving his coat behind. Now, we read this, understand that coat is the word tunic or overcoat. He didn't leave without clothes on. He wasn't like he ran and left everything. It was just his outer coat. And the whole point of this, I think, is Moses as a storyteller is using the irony and the literary device of the coat again. And so he runs out. That, and we don't know why. We don't know all the reasons here, but this she is not, she is tired of the pursuing. I don't know if she's shamed. I don't know if she's embarrassed. I don't know what the situation is, but she determines at this point that he's going to pay for his insolence. And so she screams and she cries out and the men come in and the, and the guards, the other slaves that are guards come in and she has the coat as evidence. And she says, he tried to rape me. And when I grabbed him to say no, he got scared and ran away and left the coat. Notice that also, if you read the text, when you read it earlier, uh, she does a really um, clever thing. She says to her servants, Potiphar's really the one who did this to us. He brought this Hebrew, this Haberu, means raider or pirate, in that day before the name came to change its use, he brought him in here to mock us. Well, when she uses that, when she says that to them, and then she uses that to Potter for himself, like, what's he going to do? <laughs> like, it's really your fault. And his anger is aroused, and Joseph is cast into the king's prison. Now, that's going to be important later on in the story. Just remember the king's prison. What was the king's prison? It was the place where all people went who the, whom the king, Pharaoh, determined whether they live or die. So there was no trial for Joseph. He's still a slave. He's successful, he's powerful, but he's quickly reminded he's still a nobody. He has no legal recourse. He's there. 
in the twist, because I think of the chiastic structure, um, Moses wants us to understand that this isn't the end. And it's funny how it completely mirrors what we just read. Now he's in prison. What happens in prison? Well, God is with him. And so what happens as a slave? He becomes the slave over the slaves. He, basically, the inmate is now running the asylum. That's what's happening now. And Joseph's running the place. And it says the same thing. The keeper of the prison, the keeper, he didn't know what was happening on in the prison because Joseph would take care of it. Um, and that's where the story ends with God reminding us, once again, Potiphar, who exalted him, abandons Joseph. But God didn't. God didn't. Well, that's where our story ends. Um, let's look at chapter 38 of Genesis. Because I want to read this, and then we're going to talk about this story and see how these connect. Genesis 38. I'll read it, we'll walk through it very briefly, and then apply it. It came to pass at that time, what time? This is the time after Joseph has been sold by his brothers, so it kind of goes backwards in time now. That Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And Judah saw there a daughter of, the, of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he married her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Er. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. And she conceived yet again and bore a son and called his name Shelah. He was a, at Kezib when she bore him. Then Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Obviously, some time has now elapsed, right? Er's grown up. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. And Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and marry her, and raise up an heir to your brother. But Onan knew that the heir would not be his, and it came to pass when he went to his brother's wife that he emitted on the ground, lest he should give an heir to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, therefore he killed him also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is grown, for he said, lest he also die like his brothers. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. Now in the process of time, the, daughters, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died, and Judah was comforted and went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And it was told Tamar, saying, Look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's garments, it's important, another coat situation, and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in an open place which was on the way to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown and she was not given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot because she had covered her face. Then he turned to her by the way and said, Please let me come in to you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. So she said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? And he said, I will send a young goat from the flock. So she said, Will you give me a pledge? Uh, till you send it. And then he said, What pledge shall I give you? So she said, Your signet and cord and your staff that is in your hand. Then he gave them to her, and he went into her, and she conceived by him. So she arose and went away and laid aside her veil and put on the garments of her widowhood. And Judah sent the young goat by the hand of his friend, the Adulamite, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he did not find her. Then he asked the men of that place, saying, Where is the harlot who was openly by the roadside? And they said, There was no harlot in this place. 
So he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. Also, the men of the place said there was no harlot in this place. Then Judah said, Let her take them for herself, lest we be shamed. For I sent this young goat, and you have not found her. And it came to pass about three months later that Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with child by harlotry. So Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. When she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, By the man to whom these belong, I am with child. And she said, Please determine whose these are, the signet, the cord, and staff. So Judah acknowledged them and said, She has been more righteous than I, because I did not give her to Sheila, my son. And he never knew her again. Now it came to pass at the time for giving birth, that behold, twins were in her womb. And so it was when she was giving birth that one put out his hand, and the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand, saying, This one came out first, or the firstborn. Then it happened as he drew back his hand that his brother came out unexpectedly. And she said, how did you break through? This breach be upon you. Therefore, his name was called Perez or breakthrough. Afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand and his name was called Zerah. Weird story. The, one of the weirdest parts about it is why is it here? Like it's right in the middle of the, like it literally cuts the Joseph story. That's why we read 39 first, to continuation. Like chapter uh, 37 verse 36 says, now Joseph's in Egypt. Chapter 39 says, now Joseph's in Egypt. And we have this story of Judah just sort of like thrown in the middle, and it's disturbing. What's the point? Once again, I think if Moses, the scribe, were merely interested in telling us the heroism of the nation of Israel this one might have been put on the cutting block. But it's not. Now, coincidentally, it covers about 20 years of history, probably. I'm guessing at that. It's enough time for uh, uh, Judah, who's probably in his mid-20s when this starts, to get married, have three sons, those three son at least two of those sons, to grow up old enough to marry someone else. So I'm figuring around 20 years seems reasonable. And, fascinating, the entire story of Joseph from his um, captivity to when he stands before his brothers and reveals himself is 22 years. So the time frame we're looking at in this story of Judah is the entire time frame, essentially, of the rest of the story of Joseph. So I guess you could say one of the purposes is, so we know what's going on with Joseph, but what's happening back home? Meanwhile, back in Canaan, and it's not very pretty what's happening back in Canaan. First of all, notice this is the first example or instance of one of the covenant peoples, someone that is in the promised line, intermarrying with the Canaanites, which was forbidden. It's why uh, Abraham sent his servant to find a son for Isaac, right? Why, ja why Rachel sent Jacob away. But you see the opposite, Judah leaves his parents to go down to find a Canaanite. So that's the first sort of noticeable thing here. The second sort of noticeable thing, I think, is that like Joseph, he separated from his family. At this time, he leaves his brothers too. Two brothers, one leaves uh, unwillingly, one leaves willingly. Two brothers are going to encounter sexual situation. How are they going to respond? 
there is a lot here to understand just culturally. And that's what sort of makes this strange is some of the cultural things that are hard for us to wrap our mind around. The first thing I want to talk about culturally is something called uh, Leverite marriage. It's from the Latin word lever, which means in-law. Um, and this is not a biblically commanded practice. You have to understand that. This is a cultural, legal practice in the near ancient Middle East. Practiced by the Assyrians, the Canaanites, the, uh, the, uh, uh, even not as much the Egyptians, but some of the, this, in this practice we have records of this sort of thing with all sorts of different rules. Later in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses, by God, will regulate, give laws regulating a Leverite marriage. Leverate marriage, that's how you say it. Um, but not commanding it. And so when you read it in Deuteronomy later, someone's like, well, this is what they, the Hebrews did. They were, this was the common practice. What was the Leverate marriage? It's very strange to us. Not given by God, but regulated by Him. And most of Deuteronomy, by the way, is not God's commands to his people, but to regulate what they're going to do anyways, to like mitigate the damage done. That's what most laws are, by the way. <laughs> there seems to regulate us from us doing worse than we could. Here's the point. Given the vulnerability of women in the ancient world, it was an attempt to protect widows from financial loss and cultural shame. We've talked about before how in the culture, the concept of a woman not having an heir was a very big deal. It's what was behind Sarah coming up with the whole, and Abraham coming up with the whole plan with Hagar, this shame that would be there. Furthermore, a widow would have very little, once her dowry run out, she'd have very little financial recourse, but a male heir would take care of his mother. And so that was one of the purposes of it. So what did it look like? Well, the father-in-law, and this is legal. This is a legal concept in their laws. The father-in-law of the widow was obligated legally to provide a second husband if his son died. It could be in different laws, different cultures, at different ways it looked. It could be a brother. Um, in the polygamous cultures, it could be a brother's second wife, but in the, there was monogamous cultures as well. It would be an unmarried brother. The Hebrew example, by the way, was an unmarried brother, had to be a single brother, or a cousin or a near kinsman. Not in the Scripture. Leviticus forbade the father-in-law marrying his daughter-in-law. They forbade that. Leviticus does. But Assyrian culture, for example, the father-in-law himself could be the one if the sons were not available. We clearly see this kind of thing happening. If you've ever wondered if this happens again, it happens in the story of Ruth and Boaz. However, it's a lot more beautiful there um, because they actually, there's no immorality. It's just, it's different. So the concept of leverate marriage was, so if the son dies and now she's a widow, another son or a cousin or somebody is given and she marries and raises up. But here's the thing. That son, that first male heir, stands in the place of the one who died. He's now the firstborn. If you think in royalty, he becomes the next paid king, not the second son. This is why Onan does what he does. He doesn't want to share his inheritance with his dead brother's heir. So that's why it says, raise up a son for your brother. He would stand in that place. But if 
heir never has any brother, any sons, then Onan, the secondborn, becomes the firstborn, and he gets the double portion. He gets all the loot. So what do you got going on in this story? Well, that's the levirate marriage. By the way, another sort of comment, this is a legal obligation. The son could refuse. He said, I don't want to marry. And then the father was obligated to find another one. This is what happened in the Ruth and Boaz story. The one refused, and so Boaz could then fulfill it. Um, also, the father-in-law could release his daughter-in-law from the moral legal obligation, and she would be free to marry whoever she wanted. So what we're going to see in the story as I walk through it, none of those things actually happen. Everything done is done not only morally wrong, but culturally wrong too. So what happens here? We have no idea why, but Ur was a really bad guy, and so God kills him. Now, if God kills him because he's a really wicked man, but he doesn't kill Judah, then he must have been really bad. <laughs> so now there's a widow. Tamar's a widow. So father-in-law, Judah says, hey, Onan, go raise up a son for Ur. And Onan's thinking, that works counter to my entire plan. I want the inheritance. I don't want him getting it. But here's the, what the grossness of what's going on here. Onan could have refused the arrangement legally. But he also wants to have sex with Tamar. He doesn't want to fulfill his responsibilities, but he wants the sexual pleasure that comes with having her at his command. And so he tries to get the best of both worlds. And there's no delicate way to say it. I think the New King James does a nice way of putting it. It says he emitted on the ground. He essentially refused to impregnate her when they were having sexual intercourse. So God says no. Not because of the levirate marriage, I believe, but because of his abuse and use of Tamar this way. Using her as a sexual toy rather than raising up a son for her and creating a family. And so he strikes Onan dead. We don't know what is going on. We do know that Judah is consummately described in the text as an ignorant fool. By the way, that's intentional when we see Joseph as the intelligent wise man. But for some reason, Judah's like, I don't think I want this girl marrying Shella. <laughs> She's a black widow. Maybe not her, maybe not intentionally, but whoever she's married to, dies. Of course, Judah, for some reason, isn't wondering why they're dying. He's ignorant of the whole situation. So he tells Tamar, and this is the part that was really important for later when she addresses him in a legal He says, go to your father's house. Yet he doesn't release her. He retains his right to marry her to whom he pleases, legally. So now she's in a position where she's going to be a perpetual widow legally. It's kind of like not getting the divorce, intentionally refusing to sign the divorce papers, but also not taking care of her. So like, what's she going to do in this ancient culture? She's going to live a perpetual widow without an heir. It doesn't seem like she knows that's Judah's intent, and we can't know for sure that's Judah's intent, except that he says two, two things that happen. One, he says, lest, he says, till my shell is gone, for he said, this is like for he said to himself, lest he also die. 
So I don't think he's really intending to ever give Shelah to her. She comes to realize that when Shelah gets grown up and she never hears word back from Judah. And she's like, okay, yeah, he's, I'm, I'm, this is my lot in life. I'm stuck here. What Tamar does is immoral. Um, so we don't want to glorify it, but it is absolutely sympathetic. She's trying to find a way within the legal system to get what's rightfully hers, a male heir. So I know it's hard for us in our modern culture, but just try to think of it that way. Well, after a while, the daughter, Bathshua, daughter of Shua, dies. Judah's a uh, widower, probably, probably um, in his 30s or 40s here, if you think about the time frame of it. He's pretty young to be a widower, right? He's got a best friend, Hira the Adulamite, the Canaanite. And they decide to go up to the sheep shearing festival together. By the way, the sheep shearing, that was a festival. That was like the, the bounty. That was, a, <clears throat> that was a party. And it seems like that's where they're going up, which explains why he's so quick to look for a prostitute as soon as he gets there. I know that this is not exactly it, and you know that I'm describing trying to help us understand things in a modern context, I'm not saying this is what the scripture says, but this reminds me of the concept of like, it's a boy's trip to Vegas, okay? And what happens in Timna stays in Timna. And that's the concept here. Like, they're going to go let loose, have a good time. And, I mean, he's a widower. You just need, he said, after the morning was passed, you just need to get away. Let's go up to the sheep shearing festival. Let's do a little business in the daytime and go to the clubs at night. That's the concept here. So on the way there, Judah decides to start the party early. Now here's what's fascinating to me. How did Tamar know that all she had to do was put a veil on her face and sit on the side of the road and it would work? She apparently knows something, I think, about Judah. Prostitutes didn't normally wear veils, according to what I studied and researched. Married women wore veils in that culture. Unmarried women didn't. Her widow's clothes, apparently, were unveiled, but it was this particular sort of dark clothing. So the veil functions to conceal her identity but as far from what I understand culturally, what I was reading, as far as what Judah knows, she's not only a prostitute, she's a married one. And you see why we're now starting to connect to the Joseph story? It is adultery we're looking at here. So, once again, Judah is being portrayed by Moses as the fool. So he sees the strange woman and Proverbs describes, to the warning to the young men, to not be drawn in by the strange woman. Judah runs toward the strange woman, the prostitute, the adulterer. Furthermore, he offers her the, how much, right? A male goat, 
actually in that day a pretty hefty sum. Using my silly illustration, they're in Vegas, you know, what, what, what's it going to cost me? No big deal. I got lots of money. Tamar is very clever here. She says, yeah, but you don't have the goat with you. How do I know you're not going to cheat me? What pledge will you give me or what sort of down payment? And Judah offers, she brings it up, she suggests this, but his signet cord and staff. Now, what does that matter for? The cord was just a cord that ran around the neck. The signet hung on that cord and it was his official seal. It's how he signed all of his documentation as a businessman, okay? Probably had something with a lion on it because he became known, known as the lion of the tribe. The, the staff, you know how staffs are important in the Bible? Moses' staff, Aaron's staff, all those sort of things. I, I found, I didn't know this. Often there was some sort of signature or something engraved on the top to identify that person's authority. Do you get what Judah's doing here? He's giving her his ID, his driver's license and social security number. Like he's, he's like giving her this pledge, which is why when he finds out that she can't be found later, he's like, uh, let's just leave it there and forget this ever happened. Which is, I say, she's clever here because that's exactly what she uses. So what happens in the course of time is he impregnates her, have a good time at the festival. He goes home. He's like, send the goat up so you can get my stuff back. Uh, Hira, he sends Hira to do it, by the way. He doesn't go up himself. Hira seems to be this, like, this wingman constantly throughout this whole thing. He goes up. He's like, um, they're like, Prost we don't have prostitution in our town. Which probably isn't true. But they said, there's no such prostitute here. He's looking around. He comes back. He's like, I can't find her. And Judah's like, okay, let's just move on. <laughs> Lest we be shamed, he says. Let's just move on. Three months later, he gets word that the daughter-in-law, whom he wronged by not marrying Shella, who he sent to his father's house and didn't release her like he could have, is pregnant. And it's assumed by everyone that it's because she went out and became a prostitute because they know she didn't marry somebody. Judah's scathing rebuke is so hypocritical. Let her be burned. Now it says in the next verse that it says, and when she came out, now that's a description of the legal proceedings, right? They got to come out for the legal proceedings. She comes out, she takes the stand, so to speak, and they say, well, what do you have to say for yourself? And she says, nothing really, except um, you'll find out who the father is when you check out this ID. And she hands the signet, the cord, and the staff. And Judah says, oh. The let her be burned is no longer seem to be flowing off his lips. So I don't know if this is the case. This is my new total speculation. You can, I'll throw it out there and then you guys can like debate it if you want. Caleb and I were talking about this week. What if when Jesus was confronted with the woman caught in adultery and all the men of the city were saying, she's an adulteress, she should be stoned, and he stoops down and he writes something weird on the ground and we don't know what it is. This, this is my just question. What if he wrote Judah out? Because that would be a direct connection back to this, right? I don't know. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying think about it. 
the hypocrisy turns to silence, right? And then he speaks and he says, she has been more righteous than I. I don't think he's speaking morally righteous. I think he means legally righteous. Because the next phrase he says, because I didn't give her Shella. Because I didn't treat her right. I was unjust to her. And so he doesn't marry her because that's forbidden in the scripture. But we're going to jump ahead. Tamar's son Perez is the firstborn raised up in the place of Ur. And next week we're going to read Matthew 1. And Tamar's son Perez is the ancestor of Jesus Christ in the messianic line. And the story ends. Now, we read about the whole weird twin thing, kind of a flashback to Jacob and Esau, right? Moses does this, and he constantly is drawing these literary connections, keeping us connected. But there's, this is a lot of Scripture, and I, we can't explain everything here. I want to talk about the connection, though, between the two. I believe the reason why this text is here is we are meant to compare and contrast the two chapters. So when, when we see them, we can compare them. We see there's a lot of similarities. One, they're both separated. Joseph and Judah are both separated from their family. Judah and Adullam, Joseph and Egypt. They're both close to a foreign friend. Well, foreign friend, Hira. Foreign master, Potiphar. We have these kind of like companions in both stories, right? Hira and Potiphar. Both of them have a sexual encounter with a clever woman. Tamar is clever in her regaining her rights. Uh, Potiphar's wife is clever in getting her passions or seeking to. Both of the men must process sexual temptation. Story twist of it all centers on clothing. Uh, I think this is just kind of neat. The garment that's left in Potiphar's hand, one could connect that to the signet cord and staff that's in Tamar's hand, or one could connect it's central in the story of Genesis 38, Tamar taking off her widow's garments, putting on a veil, and then putting back on her widow's garments. Very clear in the text, it's a very important part. But the story twist that connects them is this garment issue. I don't think there's a deeper theological reason for that. I think that's a literary reason. It connects the stories together. But what's different? Because that's what's more important, I think. What's very different to me is, first of all, God's silent presence in chapter 38 versus his loud presence in chapter 39. The only two times God appears in chapter 38 is to kill Ur and Onan. But yet, all through chapter 39, it's saying it over and over again, right? But he's with Joseph. He's blessing Joseph. He's favorable toward Joseph. What is this doing? This, I think, literally is helping us see that while God is present and he is sovereignly directing in both situations, he is morally with Joseph and he is opposed to Judah. It's that, we've talked about at times, that, that deafening silence of God when we read these texts of failure. Judah is constantly portrayed in chapter 38 as consummately ignorant and foolish. Why did he give her his ID? 
Why did he assume she's the problem when his boys are wicked and he doesn't even know it? I mean, if your children are being killed for their wickedness, you would at least know something's going off. Why does he like just assume that this prostitute this, this, is going to sleep with him? And why does he just assume that everything's going to be fine when his ID goes missing? Consummately described as ignorant and foolish. On the other hand, isn't Joseph consummately described as hitting way above his pay grade? Wise, intelligent, thoughtful, careful. This goes back to the illustration that we talked about. One of the purposes of the Joseph Chronicle is kind of a human picture of the wise son in Proverbs. And Judah is the foil to that. He's the foolish son in Proverbs. One of the key components here, though, is the lack of integrity that Judah shows, right? He treats his sons wrongly. He treats his daughter-in-law wrongly. He doesn't follow even the cultural rules. He takes advantage of them. He has no integrity. Whereas that's a glaring aspect of Joseph's life. His integrity toward Potiphar, toward Potiphar's wife. Fear of God. And so we see in the contrast then Judah runs toward temptation, whereas Joseph runs away from temptation in fact, both of them physically and literally running toward and away. And then Judah is hypocritical, and so he is accused, and he's guilty. Joseph is steadfast, he is accused, and he is innocent. And that's the comparison, the connection. Well, we have five minutes and I want to just take that time. There's a lot for you to read, study. I'll be glad to talk to you more about this text. I knew we wouldn't be able to get, explain everything in it. But I want to talk to you about how what we take, what we do with such an ancient text of both of these chapters. I want to start with the big picture theology. I already mentioned it. The seed, Perez, is sovereignly produced even through... Judah's sinful foolishness. We sang about God's mercy. Remember we asked the question, why is the last story about Joseph instead of Judah if he's the messianic line? Well, there is some about Judah in here. We do see the messianic line. And it's gross. And yet God is merciful. But even bigger picture, the seed is sovereignly protected through Joseph's steadfast righteousness. Because if the time frame works out, if this is about 20 years of time and the rest of the story is about 20 years of time, then when Judah escapes the famine in Canaan to go live by Joseph's preservation in Egypt, then little Perez goes with him to Egypt and is protected ultimately through Joseph's being cast in the king's prison. We see one or two things God may be doing in our lives on any daily basis. 
But because of his mercy, he's doing a thousand things before and after we will never understand until we stand with him, perhaps we'll understand. That's what's going on here. The sovereign providence of God working through the unrighteousness of Judah and the righteousness of Joseph. Now, he does not cause Judah to sin, nor does he force Joseph to obey. And yet he is sovereignly at work in both producing his eternal divine purpose, and that is to preserve the seed of the Messiah. So ultimately, these stories are working for us. But we do need to think of the moral concept here. So, we often say that you should not primarily read the Old Testament texts as a uh, be like David, be like Moses, be like uh, Joseph sort of application. It's valid, though. Um, Paul tells us to... Well, the author of Hebrews tells us that these things were written for us, that we would learn from them, specifically the children of Israel. But when the text is so blatantly showing us righteousness in action, when the text is so clearly giving us a picture of what we are taught in Proverbs, this is an important, valid application. This is for Christians. This is not be good and God will love you and accept you. But beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, if we can't say this, we can't say anything. Don't be like Judah. Be like Joseph. Right? Flee fornication. Run from it. The text I have up on the screen, screen all speak to this issue. It's not just here, it's everywhere in the Scripture. One of my favorite texts in the New Testament is Titus chapter 2. The grace of God teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. No, we don't need to live godly in order to gain God's grace and favor. The grace of God in His favor toward us should teach us to live righteously. Hebrews 13.4 says the marriage bed is undefiled, but adulterers and, and, and whoremongers, an old word from the King James Version, God will judge. And then we have the consummate Proverbs. I, last week, I thought found this fascinating. I was going to read this for you. Proverbs chapter 6. Um, last week we mentioned how the Proverbs chapter 6 talked about the six things, the seven things that God hates. Well, isn't it crazy um, that this very same chapter now speaks to the Judah issue almost immediately after speaking to the brother issue. In Proverbs chapter 6, the second half, it says this, uh, My son, keep your father's command. Do not forsake the law of your mother. Chapter, verse 24. To keep you from the evil woman, from the flattering tongue of the seductress. Speaks of both Joseph and Judah, right? Do not lust after her beauty in your heart, nor let her allure you with her eyelids. For by means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread, and an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. Can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? So as he goes into his neighbor's wife, whoever touches her shall not be innocent. 
People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is starving. Yet when he is found, he must restore. He still must restore sevenfold. He may have to give up all the substance of his house. Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding, lacks sense. He who does so destroys his own soul. Wounds and dishonor he will get, and his reproach will not be wiped away. For jealousy is a husband's, a Potiphar's fury. Therefore he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will accept no recompense, nor will he be appeased, though you give him many gifts. Now the Proverbs written in the genre of the son, but the application is to daughters as well. It's also application to, to husbands and wives, old and young. Pornography is today's prostitution. Christian, brother and sister, have integrity, fear God, and flee. Sexual immorality, especially virtual porn, is destroying you, your marriage, your society, the church, and dishonors God who has loved you and me. I know we need to not make the Old Testament stories only moral lessons, but we cannot miss the obvious moral truths within them. But finally, remember Joseph is also a type of Christ. He draws us to Jesus. For all of the refusal of illicit sex, the integrity of hard work cannot erase the guilt of sin or change one's standing and heart before God. So Joseph may have faced deep temptation. Jesus faced greater. Hebrews tells us he was tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Joseph faced a powerful woman. Jesus faced the prince of darkness. And he refused to bow before him. Joseph suffered for his decision. The Proverbs didn't actually come true for Joseph. He fled the adulterous woman, and yet the jealous husband still imprisoned him. Jesus, as well, was perfect. He fled temptation, and the jealous Pharisees crucified him. Joseph went to prison being falsely accused. Jesus went to the cross and bore the sins of humanity being falsely accused. And he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors, but it was not his sin he bore, it was ours. So while we ought to admire, learn from, even imitate Joseph and refuse Judah, even more importantly, we must rest in Jesus.